Well, good morning. How is everybody today? So glad you're here this morning. I'm Brian Legg. I'm part of our lead pastor team. Glad that you could be here for worship, and I hope that you're glad to be here as well. By the time I finish today, you may not feel the exact same way, but we're going to trust that God has something to speak anyway. Just in full transparency, I have really wrestled with what to speak today. I walked through our reading from this past week, and there were two primary themes we're running in the week's reading, and there's really more than that in it, as you saw, but the two primary things that jumped out at me, one was the cost of being a disciple, and that's really what I wanted to talk about. It's one of those challenging subjects, and it's a topic that pushes us to kind of assess our motivations and our actions, but then that second theme that grabbed me was the, the fact of how important or how much importance we place on our money and our possessions, and there are some really good stories here about that, but If I'm just being honest, I didn't want to talk about that. I felt like the cost of discipleship was more important for where we are right now, and it'd honestly just be a little easier to lay out. But the more I read and the more I prayed, I just couldn't get away from this one tiny little passage in Luke chapter 12. I looked through it, and I thought, there's not even enough to speak about there. That's going to be like a five-minute message. And I know some of you would be thrilled with that, (laughs) but don't get too excited because it'll take longer than that. But I went back to it, and I really began to dig into that passage and allow God to speak to my heart, and I realized there was a lot bigger understanding to be gained from that tiny little passage. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. But before we jump into the passage, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Just we'll kind of prime the pump, if you will. So how many of you, and I want you to do this by show of hands, how many of you would say that you are a content person? You would think of yourself as being content. You're okay with the things you have, where you are, what's going on. Okay, a few of you. So how many of you who say you are content, I wonder, would you say that you are pursuing more things? Is there something special maybe you've got your eye on or something that you you just see that you really need for some particular purpose? You see, if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us who say we are content in actuality are still pursuing things. We're still looking for more stuff. We may say that we have everything we need, but there's still some of those things out there that would just be cool to have. It'd be fun to be a part of that. It'd be nice to have that for our stuff. We may not even be saving up for them or think of it as actively pursuing it, but yet we're still pursuing it nonetheless. It's kind of like when you go out to eat. You know, you go to a restaurant, you get this great meal, It is really, really good food. It's satisfying. You get to the end of the meal, and it's like, man, I am stuffed. I can't eat another bite. That was amazing. And then the server brings the dessert menu. Or even worse, you go to one of those restaurants where they bring the dessert out on that tray, you know, like the big old piece of chocolate cake that's on the plate displayed there for you to see. And all of a sudden, that content feeling, that stuffed, satisfied feeling of, I'm good, changes to, well, I think I can fit just a little bit more, right? If you're honest, you know every single one of you have done that at least once. So let me ask a different question. How many of you would say, again, by show of hands, that you're a greedy person? How many of you say you're greedy? Okay, we've got some honest people at TBA, some greedy people around here for sure. What if I ask you, and you don't have to raise your hands for this one, But what if I ask you, how many of you looked at pornography sometime this past week? I bet there would not be a single hand go up in the auditorium. Or what if I ask you if you stole anything this past week? Or what if I ask you if you cheated on something 
or if you lied about something, or if maybe you did something immoral. What if I asked you if you were faithful to your spouse, to your wife, or to your husband and your thought life this past week? I wonder how many hands would go up for questions like that. You see, we don't like to talk about those ugly sins as we might see them. We don't like to talk about the things where people might know something about us. We lie or we cheat or we steal or, or we've done this thing that we see as bad. But, you know, greed, ah, no big deal. That's not really a sin. Or at least it's a small one if it is, right? Here's what I wonder. Do we ever combat greed in our lives? You know, if I struggle with lust, I learn to avert my eyes. I learn not to put myself in certain places where I know there's going to be temptations. I put safeguards in place to guard against other sins in my life, things like pornography. I have internet filters, or I remove the browser from my phone, or I put restrictions on what TV shows and movies I can watch. If I struggle with addiction, let's say to alcohol, you're going to avoid going to the bar. You're going to avoid going someplace where they're serving alcohol or it's going to be available to you because you know about those things in your life. So you put up these defenses, these safeguards. But do we ever put safeguards in our lives to avoid something like greed? Do we remove the shopping apps from our phones or do we choose not to window shop so that we don't start desiring something that we don't really need? Do we put a strict limit on our budget to protect against spending on things that aren't really necessary? Do you have an accountability partner that asks you about how you spend your money or what you're going after? And I'm not talking about your spouse that gets upset with you when you blow money. I'm talking about somebody else that's asking you those hard questions. You realize that greed is one of the Ten Commandments? It's one of the big ones. It made the list. Exodus 20, 17, do not covet. Don't want things that you don't need. Don't pursue things that maybe belong to someone else. Or depending on how greedy you are, you might even say that it ties back to the second commandment as well. Do not make any idols. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how those things sneak into our lives. Now, before you shut me down, don't assume that this is not an issue for you. Because I know how we are. He's talking about greed today. That's not me. I'm good. He's talking to somebody else. Now, my brother-in-law, Sam, that boy... You know he's greedy. That boy is a professional Amazon shopper. Let me just tell you. Now, I'm harassing Sam. I don't really think of him as being greedy, but I just have to tell you, this past week, I'm writing out thoughts for my message, and I literally had just written about making fun of Sam and talking about him being a greedy person and a professional shopper, and no lie, I'm interrupted by a text that is him sending me an advertisement for a gadget. I went, boy, you just walked right into that. I mean, it was perfect. Here's what's crazy to me. While many of us would very laughingly say, yeah, I'm greedy, I think we would also say, well, greed's not really an issue in my life. But is it? You know, I have to wonder, why did Jesus spend so much time focused on talking about money and possessions? Did you realize that 16 of 38 parables, and, and there's some debate about how many parables, depends on how you break it down, I'm not going to get into that, but approximately 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them, almost half deal with money and possessions. 15% of the words Jesus spoke, so all those little red letter portions in your Bible, the words that came from Jesus' mouth that are recorded in Scripture, 15% of that talks about money and possessions. 
10% of the verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 10% of everything that's written in the Gospels deals with money and possessions. Step back and look at the whole Bible for a moment. There's approximately 500 verses on prayer, just less than 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And yet we say greed or money and possessions is not an issue in our lives. Maybe it's not for you. All I'm asking is this, don't shut me out just yet. Listen to what Jesus has to say in this little passage and ask yourself, is there any part of this that might apply to you today and where you are? So let's jump into the passage. We're in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now stop right there for just a minute. Let's give a little context. Jesus is teaching to a huge crowd. In fact, at the beginning of the chapter, if you go back and read, it says there were thousands of people who were stepping on each other, trying to crowd in close to Jesus to be able to hear him as he teaches. So it's out of that huge crowd where Jesus is teaching that we see this man yell out to Jesus about his brother dividing his father's estate fairly. And when I first read that, I thought, that's just a weird question. Why would he ask that? It's strange. Jesus has been teaching on prayer. He's been teaching on carrying the light of the gospel. He's been talking about hypocrisy. He's been calling out the Pharisees, kind of painting this big picture kingdom mindset as he's teaching. And then there's this random request about dividing an estate. I kind of picture it like a child calling out to his parents, make him share that toy with me. It's not fair. We've all had those moments in our families, right? But see, in reality, it kind of does make sense if you stop and think about it. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews. And Jesus is a well-known teacher, and at this point, he's known as an authority of the law. And so this man's calling out to him, and in reality, he's asking Jesus to simply confirm what the law of Moses says. This was already spelled out very clearly in the Mosaic law. In fact, you probably remember reading this. Back in Deuteronomy, it talks about how should an estate be divided. The older brother's supposed to get two-thirds of the estate. The younger brother is supposed to get one-third of it. That's the fair way to divide it out. So this guy's yelling out to Jesus, who's seen as an authority, to go, make my brother divide it up fairly, tell him what's written in the law, confirm it, so he'll do what he's supposed to do. Seems fair enough. But look at how Jesus responds, verses 14 and 15. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Who made me judge? Why are you asking me this? This isn't why I'm here. See, Jesus knew his purpose. He wasn't going to be distracted by this kind of thing because this wasn't his purpose. But then look at what he says. He turns to the crowd and his first word, beware. Beware. He's getting their attention. In fact, the Greek word here is horal, which means to see, to pay attention to, or to understand. He's giving a warning here. Pay attention to this. This is important. Then he goes on to tell them to guard against every kind of greed because life isn't measured by your stuff. It's not measured by your money or possessions. Guard against it. In other words, get your safeguards in place. Put up your defenses. Make sure you're protecting yourself from this. Don't let this trip you up. Beware. This is important. I wonder, when's the last time that you paused to consider whether you were greedy? Is greed an issue in my life? I doubt you can think of a time that you've asked that question. 
It's not a common thing that we contemplate on these days, especially here in America. In fact, do you even know how to define the idea of greed? What do you think of when you hear the word greed? Again, it's probably not your life you're thinking of, but you can probably think of plenty of other people around you who are greedy, right? That guy's got way too much stuff. He blows his money on junk all the time. Talk about a greedy person. But I'm not greedy. I don't deal with that. The Greek word for greed in this passage is pleonexias, and it actually comes from two different Greek words, pleon, which simply means more, and exias, which is from the root word echo, which means to have. So you could very simply say that the word greed is defined as to have more, to have more. I wonder, do you find yourself wanting more ever? Because that's greed as it's defined here. Now, for a little bit of context, I want you to listen to Paul's words to Timothy. He's given Timothy instruction as Timothy's getting ready to start his ministry. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. He says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Listen to that. If we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. See, Paul's telling Timothy Timothy here, don't get distracted like so many people do by pursuing stuff. If we have food and clothes, we're good. We don't need anything further. We're content. If we just have food and clothing, am I messing with your head yet? Because that's not what I think about when I think contentment. I don't know about you. Would you still say you're content when you define it like that? If we have enough food and clothing, then we're good? See, it's interesting. A few weeks back, I was having a conversation with my doctor, and my doctor is from Honduras, And so we talk all the time when I go in to see him about what's going on in the area that he came from. His parents still live there, so he travels back and forth quite a bit. And I tell him about the the town that we're working with and the church there in El Zapote and some of the things that we get to do partnering with that community. And so we just, we kind of swap stories. Well, that day we were talking about the effects of anxiety and depression and, and all the pressure and stuff, stress that happens within the American people. And he made this illustration. He goes, do you notice how when you go to Honduras, most of the people that you come across have nothing, literally nothing. I mean, some of them don't even have a place to live. They have nothing, but yet there's always a smile on their face. There's always joy in their hearts. You don't notice stress, anxiety, depression. There's no prescriptions of medication for those kinds of things happening in Honduras because they don't let those things affect them. And he drew this conclusion. He said, they understand what's really important. They're not working themselves to death to pursue a bunch of junk. They have what they need. They value the relationships that they have more than anything else. They don't value possessions. They value the fact that their family is with them. They value the relationships that they have and the people around them, and they find joy in life as they experience it. And he's right. For the most part, outside of some of the big cities in Honduras, There's this general idea that they have a different perspective about what's important. 
And the truth is, most of us miss that perspective. We don't get that. We don't get that. We have this warped perspective about what's really important in life. And I think it's the same back here in this Luke passage that we're looking at. This guy is calling out to get this important issue resolved. Teacher, tell my brother about the law. Make sure he divides up the estate fairly. Make sure I get what's mine, what's owed to me. And it sounds fair enough at first glance. But what he's missing is the opportunity that Jesus is offering him. See, Jesus is teaching about how he can walk in real relationship with God, about how he can have hope of eternity with his creator, but this guy's focused on getting the money that his brother owes him. He's missing it. He's missing the opportunity that Jesus is presenting to him. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he goes on to share another parable, a story to make his point to everyone who's gathered there so that they can understand what it is he's trying to say, starting in verse 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night, and then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, I'm sure you've heard this story before, and you probably get the point easily enough, but I don't know if we really stop and think about it, because I don't know that any of us are farmers. We don't understand this idea of building bigger barns or bringing in more crop. So just for clarity, let me put it in today's terms for you. A guy opens a business... And the business takes off, and he does really, really well, and he's making lots of money, and he wonders to himself, what can I do with this? And he sits back, and he kind of daydreams about it, and he thinks about what are some of the things that he can buy, and how can he invest, and how can he save for retirement so that he can retire really early and enjoy life and not have to work until he's 80. He builds a bigger house. He opens several other bank and investment accounts. He buys some nicer cars, buys a boat, does all this good stuff. He hires an investment firm to handle his wealth and to make sure that it's being managed and invested well. He takes out lots of insurance to protect everything that he's investing in and make sure that everything's good and lined up. And then he retires from his business. He sells it off, makes a pretty penny off of it. And he steps back and he goes, I get to enjoy life now. 35, 40 years old, I'm done with this work junk. I'm ready to have some fun. Sounds really good, doesn't it? But God has a different plan. God says, you're dead tonight. So what good is all this to you? You're dead tonight. What good is all of this to you? Newsflash. Jesus just painted the picture of what we would call the American dream. Think about it. You work hard. You manage your money wisely, you're successful, you enjoy the good life. But Jesus isn't painting a picture of a dream here. He's using this as an example of greed. And he's saying, this is what you don't want to do. Now I'm going to pause right here because I can kind of guess what many of you are probably thinking right now. Jesus is not saying that money or possessions are bad. He's not telling you that you shouldn't work hard. He's not telling you that it's bad to make money. But what he's doing is asking you to dig beneath the surface. 
Question your motivations. Question your intentions. What are you working so hard for? What are you trying to accomplish? What's driving you? What's most important in your life? See, I think Jesus makes it clear that this guy missed it. He's focused on his accumulated wealth and making his life easy, but God had a different plan. In fact, verse 20 in the NLT that I just read you says, you fool, you'll die this very night. And I don't think I have to explain the first part. In fact, every translation of the Bible I could find says the same thing, you fool. It's very clear that one's translated word for word, and I don't have to describe to you the fool thing. You're stupid. You don't get it. You missed the point. You fool, you're going to die this very night. But see, here's the part that messed with me. NLT says, you will die this very night. But NLT is not a word-for-word translation. And if you go back and start looking at some of the word-for-word translations, it most often is translated something more like this. Your life will be demanded of you. That's from NIV. Or your soul is required of you, ESV. Here's some other versions saying that. And here's the part that got me. The Greek word that's translated there is demanded or required or to say that you will die this night is the word apoteo. And it's a Greek word that is a financial term that's referring to a note that's being called. It's talking about when you have a loan and whoever has given you that loan comes to you and goes, you owe me now. You need to pay up. I'm demanding repayment on that loan. They're calling the note and it's due at this moment. And the part that I'd never seen before is how this word paints a picture that this man's life was on loan to him from God. Think about that for just a moment. His life was on loan to him from God, and God is now collecting on that loan. He's saying, I want your life back. I loaned it to you, and now I'm calling for repayment. And I think that's the core of the conflict in our hearts right there. We see our lives as our own and they're not. They're loaned to us from God. Our lives are not our own. They're loaned to us from God. Our hearts only beat because God causes it to. Our lungs only take in oxygen and process the air that we breathe to be able to function and go about everyday life because God allows us to. We have nothing without God. Our very lives belong to him, and it doesn't matter whether we confess him as Lord or not. God determines the time of our birth, and he numbers our days. In fact, Jesus goes on in the next passage to say, that's why I tell you, listen to those key words, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. And then a few verses later, he says, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? Think about that. There is nothing that you or I can do that will change our appointed time to die. Nothing. It's outside of our control completely. In fact, Think about people you know. Look around you for a moment. See, we all know or have known people who are the absolute picture of health. People who ate right, people who exercised right, people who did all the right things and took care of their body, and they were this model of exercise science. And they died of a massive heart attack suddenly. Or all of a sudden they're diagnosed with cancer. I don't have to express it any differently. I don't have to go into detail We get it. We're not in control of our lives. There's nothing that I can do that will change when I die. That's God's business. 
causes me to flash back to Job's words when he gets message after message after message about the losses that are happening to him and his family. And he says this, Job 1, 21, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. See, Job recognized something. He recognized our lives are not our own. We don't control them. Control is that illusion that we think we have. We came into the world naked. We're going to go out the same way whenever God says so. As simple as that. And yet we're so worried about our stuff in between. In verse 21, New Living Translation says it like this. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. And that's very true. I like the way NLT says that. But if you know anything about the New Living Translation, it doesn't go word for word in translating from the Greek. It kind of takes phrases and, and ideas and tries to put it in today's language to make it understandable. And this is one of those moments where I just think the translators of NLT missed the mark a little bit. The beginning part's the same in most translations. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth. I get that. But when you look at it word for word at the end, a more literal translation would be to be rich towards God or is not rich toward God. And the word rich there is very clearly referencing monetary wealth. Makes it very clear. And it begs the question, what are you most worried about? Having stuff here and now or being rich toward God? Storing up treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy are you more concerned with living the good life now? Or are you motivated to use the resources that God has blessed you with, and he's loaned them to you, by the way, to expand his kingdom here on earth? I'd equate it kind of like this. For those of you in the room who are married, maybe you can kind of flash back here and remember this. Do you remember when you first met your spouse? That moment where things kind of clicked and you went, She's the one, or he's the one, and it just, it, it kind of all happened quickly, and the passion comes running in, and you hit this point all of a sudden in this relationship where that's the only person that matters. Nothing else matters at all. You don't care what you have to do. If you have to work 10 jobs in order to buy them something nice, you're going to do it. If you have to sell everything you have to give to them, you're going to do it. Everything becomes about that person. You would do anything for them, Right? You would sacrifice anything because you love them so much. You don't matter anymore. That person matters. And you want to show them that love and, and reflect that in everything that you interact with them. See, I think a lot of us probably have forgotten that because, unfortunately, once you're married a while, we kind of lose some of that passion. We have to fight to hold on to that. But I think that's what this verse is talking about, about how we should interact with God. We should love him that much to where we don't matter. He's all that matters. We would do anything for him. We would give him anything. We want to reflect that love to him. When we stop and think about how his son came to earth and walked among us and died on a cross for us and paid the ransom for our sins, how could we help but love him that way to where we want to give him everything and nothing else matters? My love is so great I can't possibly express it. Is that how you see God? Would you say that you are rich toward God? See, it's a position of the heart that Jesus is talking about here. Like everything, he digs below the surface to get at what's inside us, to look into our heart, to look at our motivations, to look at our intentions, to look at why we do things that we do. 
Band, you guys can come on up. Don't let them distract you. I want you to listen for a moment. This is not about money. Hear me. It's not about money. It's about the heart. But guess what? Your money follows your heart. And we could argue all day on that, but you know I'm right. Your money follows your heart. The thing that you are excited about, the things that you love, the people that are important to you, the stuff that's important to you, that's where you invest. Your money follows your heart. Listen to me. I'm not asking you to give everything you own in the offering today. In fact, I'm not asking you to give anything at all. This is not about TBA. It's not about an offering. It's not about how much you give here or there or somewhere else. What I'm asking is this. Be honest with yourself about your heart condition today. Be honest with yourself about your heart condition. Are you greedy or are you rich toward God? Are you greedy or are you rich toward God? If God called his loan due today, if he demanded your life from you right now, do you have treasure stored up in heaven? Is God and his purposes your primary focus and the object of your affection, or are you the object of your affection? I want you to wrestle with that. It's not an easy question to ask, and it's even harder to answer. Is God truly the object of my affection or am I the object of my affection? Am I rich towards God or am I greedy? I told you when I started, I didn't even want to talk about this this week. It's been messing with my head all week long. But I just couldn't seem to get away from this tiny little passage that says so much. Maybe you need to spend some time talking with God about that this morning and I would encourage you our altars are open come kneel here at the stage take some time to pray maybe you need to talk with somebody or you want somebody to pray with you we'd love to talk to you back at next steps Mikey's back there Joni there'll be others we'd love to talk with you pray with you the first song the band is going to lead us in is just kind of a song of reflection probably one you haven't heard before or maybe haven't heard well um, don't know real well and I would encourage you just take a moment to sit and reflect and wrestle with that question Are you greedy or are you rich towards God? Again, I'm not asking you for anything. What you do with it is up to you. But be honest with yourself about the condition of your heart. Let's pray. God, it's days like this that, quite honestly, are often hard for us because you challenge us at our core. And you look way below the surface to those areas that we don't like to talk about and that we don't like to admit and we don't like to deal with most of the time. But God, I know it's when we surrender those deepest, darkest places in our heart that you begin to truly have control in our life and lead and guide and you can transform our hearts. And so God, today I ask that you would simply give us the courage to be honest about who we are, about how we see life, about how we're going about life, the decisions we're making whether or not we're being obedient in every area to you. And I pray that you would just show us in the next few moments, what kind of person am I? 
Am I greedy? Am I all about me being the object of my affection and, and how I live this life and the world that is around me? Or am I about you and your purposes? Have I truly surrendered my heart to you where I'm trusting you with everything and I'm following you with everything and I would do anything you would ask of me? Help us to dig deep today and be honest about that and allow you to speak to us. Have your way in the remainder of this service. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.